Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast my guest today has been on before uh, his name is zach oren and his previous episode i believe is from 2017 or 16 and it's a really good one there's some unique stuff on there I recommend you all check it out. Anyway, Zach is a producer, engineer, mixer, and mastering engineer working out of Shark Bite Studios in Oakland. And I would call him a seasoned veteran at this point. He's known for his work with a band such as Machine Head, Fallujah, Suffocation, and a ton of others. I give you Zach Oren. All right, Zach Oren, welcome back to the URM podcast. Nice to be talking with you again. Likewise. So you've been running a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've definitely been running a lot. It's been my quarantine thing. In fact, we're, we're on fairly early today. And so I made sure to go in and get my six miles in this morning real early for me, really. Did you used to be a an exercise person pre-quarantine? Well, so the running thing is, it's something I've been doing on and off for a good decade, but I didn't really take it to the level I've taken it until April. April 1st, like literally the 1st of April, something switched in my head and I just like decided, hey, I'm going to just start doing this more. And then, you know, two miles became three, three became five, five became eight, eight became 12, 12 becomes 14, you know, and it becomes, right now it's more a thing where I've been going every single day and I... Didn't think that was the healthy way to do it at first, but now I'm feeling it's the best way for me is to just reduce the mileage a little bit and go every single day. Feels really great. I've never felt better in my life, just as far as like, you know, psychologically mostly because of it. It's the clarity that I like from it more than any of the other benefits. And I'm not That's, getting hurt at all anymore, which is great. Yeah, that that definitely helps. I honestly I kinda have accepted that with the amount I exercise, I'm going to hurt myself here and there. <laughs> it oh, yeah. just goes with the territory. Like if 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 you want to exercise, you're going to fuck yourself up. Yeah. Like I, I've accepted it, but hopefully as little as possible, of course. Right. So, you know, like that's what I'm saying. Like I was getting calf strains. I was getting 
blisters on my toes. But, you know, it's just a learning process of find the right socks to fix the blister problems. Thanks for that tip, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I remember that. Made a huge difference. Oh, yeah. The socks are important. And I it's not like just one pair, but specialized running socks that cost more than... Dude, I didn't even know that was a thing. And uh, so I'm not running... But I am doing like six mile walks with the Same weighted thing. vest. And like I was hurting myself after a while. So your suggestions made a massive difference. Better shoes, the anti blister socks, like all that stuff, like world of difference. Thank you. Yeah. And honestly, that that's a small part of it. Cause I ran on and off, like I said, for a better part of a decade, but all of a sudden here I am doing it at an almost competitive level like out of nowhere at 39 years old. And it's in large part because I just learned how to not hurt myself going further. And then, you know, your body, I've gotten stronger to the point where it expects this much running every day. And it's not even weird. And I'm not even getting generalized soreness from it anymore as long as I do all the stretching. I've also found compression sleeves on my uh, calves pretty much completely cured the calf strain issue. But yeah, like you said. What do you think switched in your head? Quarantine. (laughs) To be honest, not having a schedule in the studio for months on end. So all my work being mixing and I had a lot of work. You know, that's a part of it. That's a part of getting started. There was about three bands I was working on. Atme, Reaping Asmodia, and some Machine Head stuff that I was listening to every day. Like... The first couple of weeks I was getting started, I was just listening to my daily revision of the mix or whatever. And I love these headphones. I'm wearing these headphones right now for getting like a consumer level playback of something. So it was really... What are they? Yeah, these are really, really great. These Galaxy Buds Plus, they're actually AKGs. I mean, they're just wireless okay. AKG in-ears that aren't too shabby at all and... You know, they're a little tinier than like wearing like some nice over ear ones, but they're also what a lot of people are going to be listening on something like this or AirPods. So I like to keep that in mind, especially when I'm doing masters. So they're not like in ear monitors or something like the Empire stuff. I was wearing those for years. I was, when I was running, I was wearing sure wired, like fancy $500 in ear monitor type things. Wow. And those sounded, great in some ways, but when I got these, these actually honestly sounded considerably better, plus they're wireless. And that's, the wireless headphone was another big thing that made the running so much more fun. These, they also just fit really well. Like I can not shake these even loose from my head, yet they come in and out really smooth. I'm not here to advertise for Samsung here, but like they're great. I should consider that because I, right now I'm using these Bose uh, Quiet Control headphones when I exercise and they Mm -hmm. pop out a lot. They break a lot. Right. And I mean, that's the big thing when you're like out running is you got to have something for your ears that's actually comfortable being in there for a real long time. And that, you know, I mean, I don't have to explain this any further, but yeah, like they need to be able to work for a long time in your ears. It's that simple. So you're in quarantine, you're mixing, you're listening to the same shit every day. How did that equal this super serious exercise habit? What's the link? The link is the time, I think. Because I've done this before where I started running more. But at some point, you're going to get interrupted by like, I'm going to go into the studio and need to be tracking for three days. And I mean, it eats up a good chunk of time in your day. You know, if I'm running yes. 13 miles, I'm that's at least an hour and a half, two hours of just the mm-hmm. running plus 
the stretching prep before, plus, you know, cool down, stretching again, shower, all that stuff. You know, it's a lot of stuff to deal with. Like, it's a lot of time, and I have to do it basically before noon or it's not going to happen. Because, you know, you have to do it while you're still got your morning energy or you're not likely to perform all that well. I don't know. That's just me personally, but still, I think that's something a lot of people find to be true. I don't know. I'm no expert on this whatsoever. No, maybe not an expert. I'm interested in learning more about people who are experiencing the same quarantine as everybody else, but who decided to do something like that during it. Well, I'm like that though. I'm always trying to improve something, whether it's like something to do with mixing or if it's something to do with anything, I'm going to always be trying to improve. You know, I can't rest on laurels. I can't just stay exactly what I'm doing. And I'm mainly talking about audio here at this point or dealing with bands, but you know, you got to keep improving on everything you do or you're going to stagnate away. So when quarantine happened, did you get scared or bummed or did you just look at it like an immediate opportunity to be able to do things you might not have had the time to do? So I'd say I didn't immediately do this. I did it a few weeks in is when I started getting a grasp on what's happening, how long it's really going to be. And I mean, even when I when I went into this... In the grand scope, a couple of weeks is pretty immediate. Yeah, a couple of weeks in, it occurred to me, hey, it's going to be this way probably until at least June. I should try to lose a few pounds. Easy way to do that would be to up my running, start do that. But that quickly just... It escalated a lot differently this time than it has in other times when I've tried to like get in shape. And I'm not just running anymore. You know, I'm doing weight and core work and some other stuff now that I'm feeling so high energy. Hey, I mean, you can <laughs> you can probably hear it in my voice uh, since I'm you know only an hour post run right now. I have a just tons of energy from this, and that's the number one benefit I found from it. Yeah. I think that when quarantine happened, see, I had already been like losing weight and exercising for a good while, like a year Mm -hmm. and a half. But once quarantine happened, I just went nuts because I figured, when else am I going to get this opportunity? That is really it. It's that. It was like, well, I'm never going to have an opportunity like this to try to like, you know, get my health under control a little better. Plus, it's really, you know, I immediately was reading about how important your immune system was for fighting COVID. And, you know, I don't know if this is still the common thinking, but the common thinking is that eventually 60-ish percent of us are going to get this disease in the next year or so, one way or another. I mean, I don't know if that's still the idea here, but regardless, my... I haven't heard any different. Yeah, my, my impression is I'm going to, if not already, have been exposed to this and I want my body, you know, I'm pushing 40 here. I want my body to actually be able to handle it. That was how I felt about it. So, you know, that's maybe not how everybody thinks about things, but I was just immediately trying to prepare my body for getting it instead of just being completely in fear of imminent death or suffocation. You know, (laughs) I don't know any other way to put it. I had Matt Halpern from Periphery on a couple months back, mm-hmm. and he's also gone hard with his physical health during this time. Great. And he was saying the same sort of thing. Like, he's trying to strengthen his lungs. Yeah. 
a lot. And then also his heart. He's just, he's gone hard with the idea of, if I do get this, I want the best fighting chance possible. That's exactly what I'm saying. And same. It's a matter really also of, well, I mean, that that's the number one thing right there. But, you know, just even thinking back to yesterday, I, I'm not thinking the way I was when I started doing this. I'm thinking, how hard can I push myself? I'm going to yep. push harder. Like yesterday, I pushed and ran seven minute, 15 second miles for the last nice. three miles of my run. That's good. That's best I've ever done by far. And I, that's more of my goal now than I was at first really training endurance, just distance. Now I'm trying to see about maybe actually getting a little faster. Dude, it's so important to evolve your goals. Like for instance, with my physical goals originally, it was just, I need to lose weight. Yeah. That I don't want to die. Goal. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to die under the age of 50. So that was the big motivator. But now that I'm like within 30, 40 pounds of goal and the light is at the end of the tunnel, I've been lifting for almost two years. Like now my goals are totally different. Now, now it's like, let's see just how fucking strong and big I can get. Let's just see how, how like ridiculous my cardio abilities can get. Let's just see how far I can push this thing to be the exact opposite of what I was. And I think that if my goal was just simply finish losing weight, I'd be bored. Yeah. When it was originally losing weight, there was such a tremendous amount that that in and of itself was a major goal. Now that it's not a tremendous amount, I have to have a goal of the same type of stature and impact to motivate me, I think. Right. And yeah, I mean, like that makes sense too. You got to change what's motivating you periodically throughout it, throughout what you're doing. But I mean, you know, I actually have noticed a lot of musicians don't do this, which is, I'm sure you've seen a lot of musicians past the age of 30, they're in a band that's been going for a while and they start to burn out and they don't know what to do because the band's going, they don't want to give it up. They're just kind of like, kind of in an endless loop. And I think it's because they haven't adjusted their goals. They're still operating as though they had the same goals that they had when they were 18 or something. Because when they were younger, just being in the band that toured some months of the year and let them afford a a one-bedroom apartment was fine. But then past a certain age, they were still acting as though that was the goal, when in reality, they probably have moved past it. They want something else for their lives, but their action isn't, really uh their action isn't really congruent with their efforts and so i notice that they start to burn out they start to get bitter they start to get depressed and i really think that adjustment of your perspective and your goals is major part of it yeah they always say set your goals but they never tell you the important part where you have to keep adjusting them if i had just like you said if i had gone off that kind of idea i feel like i achieved most goals i set out to do in yes. life when I was like 25. So you had to like, you got to at some point up the ante, change your goals. I actually think that this is one of the reasons not to get too morbid, but for why you hear about millionaires or like uh, super famous people killing themselves from depression. I think a lot of, I mean, look, I understand that there's the the actual disease of depression, the clinical type that's, and I'm not, and since I've had it, I'm, I understand it and I'm not talking about that. But what I'm saying is when someone achieves everything they set out to achieve, 
and they don't have something else to live for, life can start to get very empty. And emptiness and lack of direction is kind of like breeding ground for depression. Right. 100%. So I feel like they start to feel like, what else is there left to do? And then don't know what to do with themselves. And in if they already have a tendency towards depression and negative thoughts, it can spiral out of control. Right. And so, I mean, I mean, I can't agree with you more on that. Having things that you're striving for, having things to live for, it's always a really good thing. And it's also probably part of this whole thing with me is that, uh, you know, I want to, my goals are interesting because I've always been in generally happy person overall. My life has flown by, I feel like. I can't believe I'm nearing 40 and I'd like to keep feeling young a long time if possible. I look at these guys that are, you know, in their 60s, sometimes 70s that are still out running every day and walking yeah. around fine and feeling good. And it's a really easy connection for me to make with these cardio types as opposed to all sorts of other kinds of workouts. You know, you put, you go get jacked and put on a hundred pounds of muscle or something. <laughs> you got to maintain that or, you know, and it's terrible on your joints. And like, you see those guys when they're in their like even late forties and they're all just stiff as a rock. I want to be pushing longevity. Yeah. So when I say I'm trying to get as big as possible, I'm not saying that. Just, <laughs> oh, I didn't think you <laughs> just were. For, just for clarity. I feel like past 40, if someone looks really good and has a lot of vitality to them, it's due to choices. Like when you're under yes. 40 and especially under 30, you can, I'm not going to say you can do whatever you want and get away with it, but the tolerance for what you can handle lifestyle wise is much greater. You can recover a lot faster. And so right. there's no great feat to having energy or looking good when you're under 30 or even under 35. But when you start to get past 40, it's still possible to look incredible and feel incredible. But if you are, it's because you, you're putting in the effort for it. Right. I mean, that's just the huge point right there because what I don't understand about me, I've always looked younger than I am and I've always felt younger than I am. Yeah, you look 30. Well... Thanks, I think. It's also just that I'm small. I'm a very small person. I'm barely five foot four, you know, and I've always been mistaken for younger than I am. But I don't, I would like that to continue and I'd like to feel <laughs> like it too because I don't feel near 40 at all and certainly not right now. And I don't have a lot of mileage on me either because I've never, you know, I spent a long time in my 20s doing absolutely no exercise. I don't think I really first got into any sort of exercise till I was like 29. I had, I spent this whole period of my life just resting and engineering audio, you know, often working with bands months on end and no breaks, just going crazy hard all the time. And it's just this is much healthier, this is much better. I'm having a lot more fun right now than I was when I was doing that. That's for sure. I would almost say that doing that puts more mileage on you. Maybe, but my joints, for example, everybody's ah, like, okay, okay. people so, okay. are saying like, how are yes. your knees not giving out? How are, yeah. I'm like, I okay. don't feel like, I know this That's is when like mean. an athlete would be retiring. And I'm sure if I was doing this at 25, I'd be pushing much higher speeds and, you know, 
I'd be doing better. I know that. I know that I'm not anywhere near like the peak of like what I could have done, but I also just don't care because it's not like I'm like trying out for some team or something. This is 100% personal thing. The peak of what you can do now. Right. And I don't, as long as I'm not putting myself or in pain or causing injury, it's working out great. What are you doing lifting wise? Oh, barely anything. <laughs> just, just, just some enough. basic stuff. But I mean, I, my bare minimum I do is right after the runs, I'm trying to get in two minutes of planking because that's really more <sighs> of my concern. And that's another thing. I used to have horrible back problems. That was another thing that would prevent me from doing too much exercises. I threw out my back like on 10 different occasions. And now that I've actually built up strength in it, and running does that too. Running daily like I'm doing is built up all sorts of strength in my like back and core that I didn't expect. And I'm so much stronger in that way now. So, you know, whatever. Is that the only thing that you tweaked? Like your exercise habits? Did you tweak diet at all? Sleep? Anything like that? Yes, quite a bit. The diet, quite a bit. I mean, but that was... How so? That's what's funny. It's just like a culmination. I always just started eating better around that time. And technically, I guess I started by intermittent fasting. By that, I mean, I wasn't eating breakfast anymore and I was just eating after the runs and uh, kind of eating inside an eight-hour window. And I I didn't give that up entirely. I was originally trying to like actually stick to this 16-8 thing when I was caring about losing weight. I'm not trying to lose weight anymore though, so I'm not doing that. But I still don't eat breakfast. I think that was a great adjustment for the running because just having food in your stomach is highly overrated for uh exercise <laughs> and having it for recovery is uh, you know underrated. I think uh having food in your stomach might be good for weightlifting. Certainly. If, if you've if it's been like an hour and a half or something, but for cardio, fuck that. Yeah. And I never tried that before. So that 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 was a definitely a brand new tweak to what I was doing. When you say you started eating healthier, what did you do? I'm going to have to keep that vague. I don't really know what to say okay. to that, but eating less Honestly, just eating a bit less carbs, more protein. Fair enough. And not eating as much junky snack stuff late at night. Not eating just silly breakfast. Just being smarter about it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've known how to take care of my diet before. And also just drinking less. I had been drinking a lot at the beginning of quarantine. And then I just kind of reared that back quite a bit. And then when I was really going hard at this back in April and May... And actually attempting to lose weight, I was just not drinking on weekdays. <laughs> also to try to keep some kind of normalcy towards, you know, the lockdown and the fact that, you know, Tuesday felt like Sunday. Yeah. So, I mean, I saw you in November when you came to the summit. You didn't look like you had any weight to lose. So nah, not really. when you say lose weight, how much did you go for? I went for, I mean, I was pushing, you know, into like almost overweight status and uh, I've lost 25 pounds. I'm at what Jesus. I would consider the lowest I should be at, but I feel great right here because, you know, being light on your feet is highly underrated, just a highly underrated thing. And also, I realized you had 25 pounds to lose. I knew I did. I, I knew I did, you know, probably had body fat up near close, closing in on 20%. And now it's down around 11 or 12%. So it's great. Wow, that's phenomenal. 
Congrats. And that's why I'm saying at this point, that's not really the goal. Yeah. And that's why I'm adding no. in a little more weight training. And I'd, I'd like to, I'm sure you can't lose weight without losing some muscle with it. So you got, I'm trying to get back some, especially upper body strength. My legs look ripped as can be, but you know, ah, I don't know. I don't have anything else to say on that, I guess. All right. It's a topic I'm interested in. and uh, Oh, no, for sure. Lots of lots of people who listen are too, because as you know, the studio lifestyle is super sedentary. Yep. And you have to, I feel like you have to make it a point to make healthy choices if you're going to do this, because the job itself does not allow for that. It, it There's nothing in the job built in that will help you be healthier. And in fact, if you just go along with the flow of the job, you'll become very unhealthy. That's kind of the natural progression of things as an engineer. And I would agree with that to the most extent, unless you're someone that does a great job self-motivating yourself. If you mm-hmm. if you're do that, then you do have the options to set your own schedule to some extent and all that kind of stuff. So that helps. But otherwise, like you said, it's a big pitfall some people can fall into really quickly and really easily. Yeah. I'm finding that there's a whole lot of URM people who really take this seriously um, and or really? who are wanting to take it seriously. Yes, absolutely. I think it's a good idea overall to be highly conscious of it just because of, like you said, the career and how sedentary you can end up being. It's not, but that goes for anybody working at a computer all day. Yeah. You oh, know? yeah. Ab- absolutely. I think that the um, the mental benefits, like you said before, the clarity really, really helps. But oh, yeah. So the, another thing is, I think that working in music or audio, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm sure this is true in other industries too. But this is the one I know, so I'm going to speak about this one. There's a lot of stress involved, and Tons. there's a lot of people managing involved, expectation managing, ego managing. There's all kinds of fires that come up at the last minute, just all kinds of pressures. There's also some scumbags you got to deal with. There's all kinds of things that will, if you're not careful, make you a less happy, more reactive, bitter kind of person, I think. And it's just kind of a natural thing that happens just because maybe even if that's not who you are, just having to be in those situations over and over and over and over for years, you know, it can slowly help your character personality devolve. And so I think making choices to do things that help you be clear and feel better will help you approach those situations in a much more constructive way, thereby staving off that whole burned out bitter thing that happens. I mean, I could go on. Let's go at this for a second here because this right, is something let's go at it. I know with this podcast, this is for the URM people. And this is something that doesn't seem to register with some people I talk to, even at the summit, that this job is completely, I mean, 80% of it, as far as staying in this industry, making a real career out of this, is being able to roll with things and deal with all the insanity yes. of this industry. It's not. You're not going to get a paycheck like a normal little job. This isn't something to go into if you can't completely adapt and self-manage and stay on top of the stuff. So people are always asking me, you know, like, hey, how do you set this compressor one way, this thing or other? Like, how's this 
helped your career? How can you do this? How do I be successful with this? And what they don't realize is just like 80% of the job is dealing with people that are mostly crazy people because they're all musicians and musicians are inherently crazy. And you, at least half my job is psychologist, you know, I've got to manage totally these tons and tons of people and sometimes get pushed into insane situations, insane deadlines, insane things. And the, like you said, you need to be able to have clarity. You need to know what matters and what doesn't. And there's also just the whole being able to say, fuck it, not my problem kind of thing, and be able to do that without just having an overwhelming stress of, ooh, is everybody going to like me? And those kind of feelings, <laughs> or is my mix okay? And just going for it and being creative. You cannot be creative. It's a creative job to mix a record, and you cannot be that creative if you're thinking about the 800 different worries of yours instead of just going at it and making what you want to make. And I mean, that's shown itself many times to me over the years where if, you know, I've had some big client and they gave me probably too much feedback and then I'll work with a band for the weekend, some local band and we'll record three songs and they'll come out just so much better than the group that had paid me $20,000 to you know, do this multiple month production because there's so much less back and forth. And that the band over the weekend just trusted me to do my thing and there was no... And so I'd say a large part of this, what I'm getting at here is part of this whole thing is being able to block out all that noise and actually do the good job on the big project because you know you have the ability to just not let the stress get to you because if stress is getting to you you're going to probably do worse yeah and to your point about the audio being or the music being 20% of the job i feel like mm -hmm. your skills in that are kind of assumed like if you're getting hired right. or you're in the conversation you being good at that that's just kind of like if if you're not you're not even going to be in the conversation so that part of it is just the underlying assumption. If you're being considered or talked about, people think you can do that part of it. So if you couldn't do that part of it, none of the other stuff would even exist for you. Like you wouldn't have the opportunity to be reactive or to get bitter or to have to manage these scenarios. So yeah, obviously learn how to set a compressor, but that's not the part that's going to keep you in the game. That's only the part that's going to allow you to uh, even be in the game in the first place. That's completely what I'm getting at is that that's a question that I often think about sometimes when someone's, if you hired me at this point, I haven't advertised in 20 years for anything in any way, shape or form. Like, you know, not I'm not surprised. putting like ads on something. Nothing pisses me off more <laughs> in the world when I somehow end up with a client that's like not into how I make things sound. And I just wonder, how did this happen? And almost always the answer is this band had been fighting over who to work with on the album. And the person who didn't get their way is going to be pissy about it one way or another. And being older and realizing that's almost always the case when it comes to something like that, I just ignore it. I just completely tune it out now. Meaning, if they're 
getting all crappy and they're like, well, I don't like everything kind of comments that make no sense, that don't jive with how things are going. I've learned to just realize what's going on there. And it's almost always that at this point. So like you said, it's like, if someone's working with me, they already had a conversation at some point, probably with their band or if they're solo, you know, with their friends about who should I work with. And it really helps to not be working with just random people, you know, you solicited somewhere else. And I mean, that's a luxury of having done some records, you know, but that's not something you can do when you start out. But, you know, once you do, it's really good to have people working with you that like how you do things. I know that scenario, actually. It took me some years to get to get comfortable with it. I think maturity helps a lot. You can look at that scenario where you realize, wait a second, there are some people in the band who didn't want to come to me, and there are some who did, and now I'm dealing with the backlash or the I'm dealing with the result of that. It's not personal. Exactly. I think when you're younger, it's easier to take that shit a lot personally. Sometimes it is personal, and it's even more important to block that out because it's like, I don't care. Fair enough. I don't care. What I care is that people, the the audience is going to hear it. I care way more about what they hear, what they think, because they're going to hear it. Whereas if this band, if I angered some guy in some band, then maybe that band won't come back to me. Or maybe they will, but once they get the reaction from the record, you never know. But the important thing is to not ever let that influence what I'm going to do too much. Like have my own standards that I'm living up to, not always what the group's telling me because groups don't, they should know they don't know what they are doing at oftentimes. So the question then is, where do you draw the line? Because obviously, you know that scenario where bands sometimes feel like certain producers don't don't care about their vision. Right. And I care a lot about that stuff. Yeah. I'm, I don't think that's what you mean. No, it's but, not. So, but what I'm wondering is where's the line between shutting out what people are saying versus making sure you're still in line with the client's vision? Well, first off, I'm, ne- I'm never saying shut out what they're saying. I'm saying make sure to see through it with the goggles that are showing me the bigger picture. Because if it's one it. person that's always saying something, but it's a whole band kind of thing. Like, you know, you you could be working with a group and everybody just one by one will tell you, hey, I want to hear the guitars louder the mix. And the bass will say, I want to hear the bass louder the mix. And then the drummer's like, I need to hear more snare. At some point, you got to just tell everybody, yep, I did all that and hand it back to them and they'll all be happy. And it you, <laughs> and you could, you know what I'm saying. And I, I'm yep. not saying I do exactly that, but you know, that's the sort of thing where you got to really watch out and try to make sure the whole the band's got to be on the same page first because if the band tells me like their thoughts and their vision on this thing and then we come around to it and I'm doing it it's going to work out it always works out that everybody's always happy i just did a project with a band called gamma bomb they're a really cool band from ireland uh i guess i describe them as kind of power metally i don't really i don't know what to describe them as but uh they're a metal band and uh that project was kind of crazy cuz it got it had a hard deadline and I was supposed to get it a month before that deadline, which was already a pretty short period to work with on a full length of that magnitude. I had to do, you know, reamps and everything. It was a pretty full project. Take that. It got condensed to like 10 days because Oof. they had trouble finishing the vocals. They had trouble finishing all the guitar solos, all the stuff. But, you know, we talked though. I was talking with the band 
extensively. We had a Zoom call for like half an hour just to go over like what they wanted. And all the information I gathered in that, I made sure to really think about. Like they didn't want too much gain on the guitar tone. They wanted more of like kind of cranked Marshall tone. They wanted, you know, they talked about what they liked. I asked what recordings of mine made you want to work with me. And they were pretty specific about things. Like they loved the Warbringer record I had just done. So I thought to myself, okay, so let's use this all as a reference. And by the time I was sending them the mix, we had to have it like the very first, you know, mix one kind of thing. They had to basically give me whatever notes they had and then it had to go off to the label. It was that simple. And we knew this like going in and I was kind of really worried about that because usually you'll have a little more of a back and forth period with a band. But because they had given me such concise and clear you know, vision of it, all I had to do was sit down and execute that for a week yeah. without too much input from them at all. And they were thrilled with the record. I'm thrilled with the record. Everybody's happy with the record. And they only had like, you know, 10 little targeted spot notes. I was like, so you guys don't want like, there was no balance issue whatsoever, meaning like you guys don't want any more guitar, any less focus. Like, no, we're extremely happy, period. We're all thrilled with this. There was a couple parts they wanted a vocal up or down, and there was a couple little solo adjustments. And, that, and then bang, mastered off to label getting released. Man, that shit would always scare me. Like oh, yeah. when the band had very few notes. Yeah. It'd be like, what are you going to discover six months from now that you hate about this? Well, what made me happy about that situation is it wasn't just that they had zero notes. It was their notes were that they loved everything. You know, That's great. That's another thing I think not enough groups even think about is you got to give engineers positive feedback too. Tell them what's sounding good to you so they don't screw that up in whatever they're going to do next. Yeah, because engineers will go down neurotic rabbit holes. Or I'll assume if you didn't say anything about it, if you're not like, damn, this guitar tone's killer, I'm going to be like, okay, well, they must not be thrilled with the guitar tone. Or, you know, someone might think that is all I'm saying. Yeah, man, an artist having a vision is such a great thing. But what do you do when they don't? Uh, or when they're not clear about it? I would argue most don't, and they're mostly not clear. And that's... Yeah. So how do you approach that? Honestly, a place where I excel. Then it's my vision. Then you know, then I'm going to do my thing. My assumption will be they've heard the some odd thousands recordings I've done and are to some extent happy with them. And then I'm going to go do my thing. And if I hear stuff... I'm going to like not hesitate to just do something wild. You know, I'm not, those are sometimes the best, sometimes my favorite projects to work with are with some like super talented 16 year old kids or something that come into the studio and just go do my thing with them. And they, they trust the younger artist is, I find the more trust they have in just let the producer do what they say is going to work. Like though they don't, tell me what kind of mic they want to sing into. They don't have an amp preference. They've never even played most of the tube amps I have sitting around. So they don't have all these preconceived notions. And preconceived notions are the worst. That's all I'm going to say about that. I completely agree. Even when it comes to me or something like that, I am very careful not to like get stuck in some way just because it used to be the way I felt about things. Well, I mean, it's a natural thing to do. Uh, to mm-hmm. have preconceived notions. I, I don't think that you can be human right. without having them. They're actually 
you know, they evolved as a survival mechanism. So you learn to recognize patterns. And then when you see a pattern or something that looks familiar, you just default to that. Right. And so in modern day, we still do that even when our survival isn't at stake. But this just reminds me because I see that there's a Kemper back there. Oh, yeah. When the Kemper first came out, because I, I got one like in 2013, like I got one of the pre-release models. I've had it forever. I said, I forgot we were on video. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're on video. So I'm not making an argument right now about what's better. I don't give a fuck what's better. Like, I think great tones are great tones. And it doesn't matter. But right. when that first came out, I wanted to use it um, on certain records and the guitar players would give tons of resistance because they wanted to use their amp. And I would run these ABs between the model and that. And I'd be like, guess which one's which? They almost always guessed it wrong. And that's how we ended up using it a lot more was when I would take steps to bust through their preconceived notions. Right. Uh, that's a really good point too. Because even I, I don't love that Kemper by any means. And the ways in which I use it would probably shock and horrify people. Meaning like the fashion, the, the crazy elaborate steps I go to to use it sometimes. There's things about it that I like better than two babes. And that's when I will use it. And there's mm -hmm. no other time I use it. Meaning if I want something only I can do with that Kemper, such as, for example, you can make guitar tones tighter than even a solid state like Randall with that thing if you need to. And you could do it with the exact same guitar tone you had before by a method, you know, I think you've described it before as recabbing, but that technology yes. gets better and better and better. So off, I mean, there's times where I, I'll just, Think of an example. Examples work best to explain this. So I'll take something like the Inanimate Existence's most recent record. There's, we did the record was tracked, reamped on an Engel Fireball 100 Mesa Cab. There were a few parts though where I felt like you know the palm mutes on the occasional super chuggy breakdowny parts. They didn't have the impact. It's a little too mushy, a little too compressed coming out through the original. So, you know, you take that, I use some profile that's just crazy tight from Andy Sneep, throw that through there, use that. I don't love the cab tone from that. I feel like the cab tone from that sounds digital, sounds a bit fake, but you take that and you, uh, you know, you do the, uh, what, what do you call it? Not comparison, but I guess comparison EQ stuff. Matching EQ stuff. Match EQ, yeah. And you just match EQ that to the original cab, and I can just put those two parts, and it's completely seamless on the record as to where those little spots are where I suddenly added extra chug tightness. You know, I degained the guitars essentially a good bit on a few parts. That's what I love doing with it. Occasionally, I'll have to just, you know, Sometimes it's really the best sound period for a record. Some It's definitely the best sound I can use with a lot of uh, records of bands that don't have the greatest guitarists, straight up. You know, if the guitar player picks too light, doesn't, especially for like metal or something, if the guy isn't that experienced, doesn't have the best right hand, it's so much more forgiving than, you know, something like my Randall Thrasher or something where if you get just a little bit off on that, it's going to sound weak by comparison. So, I don't know. It, 
that's my point. I used to just completely throw out the idea of using Kemper for anything but demoing, and I've not felt that way for a long time. And it's not just Kemper. I mean, I actually prefer using this neural DSP stuff, among other stuff. You know, there's a lot of good plugin-based AMP software these days that's just really turning a corner and getting to the point where it's usable in a mix. And I don't think it's a compromise. Because that's the one thing I don't want to do is compromise in some way or another. That Dark Glass plugin, for example, just the very first original Dark Glass Neural plugin, that plugin's a better bass tone than like 85% of amps I can set up and mic up. Yes, I agree. And there's no reason, especially if I'm using like a real nice DI to begin with, there's no reason other than me trying to make it feel fancier to the band, which is something I avoid getting caught up in. Client appeasement. I'm not going to get caught up in that anymore. It's just not a thing I'm going to indulge. You know, like I don't need to indulge some silly thing where a band's like, well, we want all tube tone to this. I mean, I'm not going to lie to them either. I'm just going to say, hey, you know, give this a shot because it has its upsides. And I do weird hybrids of things all the time too, where, you know, I'll use, I have a plugin of a rat pedal I like much more than the actual rat pedal. So if I have a chance to reamp, I'm going to use that. I'm not going to use the actual rat pedal. It's just way easier to work with, especially on a bass tone or something. I like your attitude of just best tool for the job. Doesn't matter. You know how you get passed up? The way you get passed up by the young 18-year-old kids like I was 20 years ago, it's just assuming every new technology or new thing is inherently bad and not as good and that, you know, you're old school, I'm doing everything to tape, I only listen to vinyl, way is correct and better. And every single engineer I know that's like that finds their careers tapering off pretty quickly as they get older and everybody else isn't afraid to, like, you know, use auto-tune when they want to or something. You just can't fear technology. There's a whole generation of kids now who grew up in the era where all the music they listened to was made with this technology. And so it's not new to them. It just is what it is to them. And so if you're not, if you're not in line with where things have evolved to your pool of potential clients is going to be way smaller and it's going to keep on getting smaller. Right. Because as time goes, people are going to use the old ways less and less and less and less. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with tape or vinyl or any of those things. You know, they're great for what they're great for. Hardware is great for what it's great for. But you got to, like you said, you kind of got to realize that clients from this era come from this era. And this era has a certain set of tools that are uh, part of it. That's all there is to it. That's a two-way thing because you'll... I mean, even working with younger groups, like they'll they'll not realize necessarily that a lot of stuff can be way better with the old school thing. And I mean, there's a lot of situations like that too, where you of know, course. some guy's been wants to use. I mean, it's the exact opposite. That's the thing. You just can't get stuck in one thing or the other, or exactly. one way or the other. There's only a few things in audio engineering that are absolutes, like. Getting the best analog digital converters is an absolute. You know, the better is better. 
There's very few things like that, though. There's like almost everything is just subjective. I don't use almost all the tuning I do is the default tuning stuff in Cubase, for example, because I find it the most manipulatable, the most easy to use. It does everything I want it to do. Some people will say, well, Melodyne sounds a little better. And I'll say, this works really well, though. Like, <laughs> I don't, am I really good? And is anybody really going to listen to my mix and say, oh, well, I noticed some anti aliasing? All right, use the Cubase tuner. Fuck his mixes. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting at is that, yeah. you know, the idea that something is better is a horrible way to look at EQs and compressors and gear in general. One of my favorite amps to record ever is a Randall RG100. And I believe you can buy one for about 99 bucks. Yeah, I think you're right. Man, I remember when I first was getting to know Joey Sturgis, my partner in this whole thing. You know, he he was this dude that was kind of like that guy that uh, kind of did that pod farm all in the box thing that Oh yeah. You remember the perception about him. So I didn't know if he was like a good engineer or not a good engineer or what. I was just kind of getting to know him. And uh I remember he came to my place when I did a boot camp. But I used to do these URM boot camps, like these in person boot camps, and I had him at one, like in two thousand fourteen, and I watched him EQ some stuff with Q ten the plugin that okay. <laughs> people talk shit about all right, the time. Yeah. Dude, and it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. He's so good at EQ. He's one of the best people I've ever seen at EQing something. He was able to create some sounds out of out of things with that plugin in a way that I had never and haven't seen since, except for when he does it. And uh, it was just like, man, and this is the plugin that, everyone talks shit about everyone I know who's like proper and awesome doesn't use this. And here's this dude just fucking making incredible sounding stuff with this. It just goes to show it tools are tools. That's it. Tools are definitely tools. I mean, it's crazy to think I used to use a ton of just the in the software Cubase EQ on things. I realize now that that EQ is just laden with all sorts of distortion. And I'm not talking about the current iteration of it. I'm talking about, you know, from Cubase SX2 or whatever, from like 2002. And I was doing it continuously. And I probably had to even because of just, you know, CPU constraints at that point. And it's funny, I sometimes hear that. I was like, well, it's not really much different than like what analog EQs do though. Like they'll always have some sort of distortion and ringing and bad things, supposedly, but the records came out sounding pretty good. I mean, I'm not worried about that stuff at all. I think one funny thing I do is I use a plugin that hasn't been supported since like 2008 on a system that's been long extinct, and I literally have to use an older computer at this point. I might find some way around this soon, but I use this thing called the TC Power Core. Have you ever heard of a TC Power Core? TC Electronic Power Core? Dude, I used to have one. Yeah, it's similar to the UAD. It's just like, you know, one of those computers within your computer to run plugins. It's totally worthless now. I mean, in the sense that I don't need the CPU saving hit, which was the original reason to buy it. Boy, it helped back then, though. Well, the thing is, it's still helping me quite a bit right now because 
We spent a grand on a plugin after we demoed it way back then called MD3. Now it's now part of this thing called TC Electronic System 6000, which is their fancy, it's actually like an outboard mastering console type thing. And they also made an MD5, which I've tried, that's only in System 6000. I'm naming some stuff that I'm guessing a lot of people on this podcast never heard of, but... I I think you're right, but I bet you there's a whole contingent of people who are like, oh yeah, I used to have that. So MD3, I've never used anything close to as good as it, as far as two things it does. It has the best multiband compressor I've ever used, and it has the best uh, soft clipper I've ever used. Outside of that, it's horrific to work with. It's a problematic plugin in many ways. At this point, since it's a 32-bit plugin, I have to be running it in a wrapper. And, you know, it's also running off a PCI board, which there's no PCI Express version of. So I have to have a computer that has a PCI slot or some sort of way to deal with that, which, I mean, there's a few ways you could deal with that. But you get the point of the complexity I'm talking about that I'm going through just to keep that because I need it in the computer A to open anything old of mine and also because it's still the best thing. And I don't know anybody who's used it in a decade, at least. But I think it's helped me a ton. That new At May record that just came out, I don't know if I'm saying their name right, but you know, A-H-T-M-E. I had it on that, and I tried making a version without it. At May. Yeah. I, tr- I don't know. I tried making a version without it, and I try because you know I'm always interested in trying different new ideas, no, it's the key ingredient in the whole thing. And it's been the key ingredient in a lot of the good records I've done. And I don't really understand how it has no hype, no nothing. It's funny to me. And I think that there's certain tools that will become staples that even if you do have an open mind towards new things, like there's some stuff that just works. The, the end, it just works. Working is kind of the most important thing to me. <laughs> Does your plugin yeah, work? It helps. <laughs> and it, that might sound really dumb to someone that's not an audio engineer and probably makes perfect sense to everybody who is. Because, like, for example, I love Trigger 2. I know I don't think it's the most accurate thing. I don't think it's this or that, but it has everything automatable that I need automatable. Everything works really easy and well within and quickly. And that's really all I need when it comes to something like that. So I've never even considered switching to something else. I think that lots of times one of the pitfalls that or rabbit holes that engineers, and I think guitar players do this too, that they fall into is trying to one-up things that don't need to be one-upped gear-wise just for the sake of one-upping it when in reality it's not going to make any difference, especially if you found something that already works great for you. And I'm not saying don't try to evolve, but also recognize when something does exactly what it's supposed to do and there's no reason to fix what's not broken. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying right now. That's uh, Not everything needs replacement. I still don't know of a better lead guitar amp than my unnamed white uh, Marshall clone amp I have and my Marshall Greenback cap, and I use it so much. It's been on hundreds of records, and I have a Kemper profile of it that's pretty flawless. And, you know, I'm probably using one of those two things when I'm doing lead guitars when it comes down to it. And I love that sound, and I love using it. I've tried tweaking it, and it's almost always a mistake to 
try anything else. I love it that much. And I until that breaks, I'm not even going to replace the tubes on it. <laughs> Fair enough. Again, why if it works and it gets exactly what you're looking for, why fuck with it? I mean, fucking with things is the number one thing I see people do too much. They're always tweaking, screwing with perfectly great techniques and things that were working for them to try to unnecessarily upgrade. The word upgrade comes up too much. And me and Andrew Wade were talking about this once. feel like sometimes people will fuck with things to a degree where they feel like they made it better just because they put in more time. But in reality, they didn't make it better. They just made it different. And what was the point if it was fine already? Yeah, those are two very distinct different things. And making that distinction is very important because better and different can be easily uh, mistaken. Uh, Better and louder get easily mistaken in audio, I've got to say too. Which is, once I really, really, really got technical about doing that anytime I compared something, I refuse to send a band two different guitar tones in a mix until I've gone, done a full... You know, run my little meter that scans the whole song, tells me the average RMS and the average DR rating. If they're not spot on, I tweak it until they are, and then I send it to them. And just so they don't fool themselves. Right. So they don't pick the one that's louder, especially when it comes to like guitar rhythm tone or like bass tone, bass tone, actually, even more so. Everybody's going to pick the louder bass tone. Everybody is. They're going to pick the one that they hear more. So you you put them even like half a decibel off. You're asking bands to make these decisions on something. Sometimes you got to make sure they're making the decision. They're not just going to go to human nature and do what everybody would do, which is pick the louder one. And that's such a profound realization <laughs> about sending people mixes to critique. Right. Got to be so careful with that stuff. You can be a trained audio engineer and still trick yourself. Uh, so you- of course, someone who's not is going to fall prey to that. It's a completely endemic thing. It's everybody will do it. There's nobody no exception and I've seen like you just said like super experienced people just fall into the same pitfall. And I I just refuse to even do it now. And I waste a lot of time sometimes like remaking mixes over and over just to make sure I have that set correctly before I send it cuz you might think a guitar tone is way better, but might be eating up tons of low end that, you know, especially come time, if this ends up getting mastered louder or something, it's going to get even worse of a problem. It's one of those things you got to be careful just that we're talking about the right thing. You got to be talking about tone when you're talking about tone, not talking about what's louder. Yeah. How did your workflow evolve to where you realize this and it was so impactful to you that you decided to go through all this effort. Like, was it like a light bulb moment or is it something that slowly evolved? Evolved over time for sure. Because I mean, I always tried to do it. And then I started realizing, well, I'm not, if you don't really commit to that, meaning like you got to actually do it. You can't just kind of do it. You got to really do it and do it perfect or else you're not Mm -hmm. doing it. (laughs) You know, that's the problem with that whole comparison is that, you send a group a comparison, if it's off even a little, they're going to probably pick the one that's louder. I'm always impressed when a group doesn't pick the louder master 
for example, that's that shows me that they're actually listening to things as they should be, not just, you know, pressing a button, comparing back and forth and just picking what sounded bigger. Absolutely. And I've really enjoyed, by the way, the fact that groups are more and more open to that kind of thing too, where they'll uh, not, they don't, groups are less and less asking for me to make things loud and blown up. And I'm glad because I'm always trying to go that direction. And then everybody's like, well, can we go a little louder? (laughs) It's like, okay, sure. But, you know, I don't want to. I do think that the volume wars are pretty much over from what I understand, which is a beautiful thing. We say that, but we're... I want that to be true, and it is so far from true. Because let's be real, nothing is really going out, especially like in rock or heavy metal that's like quieter than like minus eight RMS. Like that's what people are doing. All right, yeah. Okay, so look, compared to the old days, right? I think you're absolutely right. That's compared what I'm saying. To, if you compare it to like the old days, yes, shit is a lot louder now. However, dude, lots of mixers who are doing great work who master their own stuff or whatnot that I've spoken to are no longer really worrying about it, at least not compared to how they were 10 years ago. Certainly not how they were compared to 10 years ago. And also, there's a huge difference here. Like, I I think it was, there, there was definitely a time when I was putting out stuff that was just crazy loud. And sometimes I come back and I hear that and I wonder if I accidentally stumbled into learning how to engineer when I was younger. I know that this is going to get weird <laughs> and high concept here, but it's okay. I was always about, I, nobody ever told me there was a volume war. Nobody said anything. Just when I was like 16, 17 years old, I was like, I'm going to figure out how to make my masters louder than everybody else's. And it's going to make everything better. And Doing that really taught me, you know, just about space and, you know, fitting everything into its little hole to make things as loud as they could be. And by doing that, I was also learning not to, you know, overlap frequencies too much. I was learning all sorts of things just by the fact that I was trying to put out stuff that if you could listen to some of the things that I've mastered, even not that long ago, they're like crazy loud, often like, Minus six RMS, DR three or something. I don't like that 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 happened, but some of them are still really good. Like I don't hate some of the. I remember I heard just the other day I heard the volumes record that I mastered and I loved it. I loved the master. I was like, maybe I should like do some of this weird, insane stuff, even though I don't really necessarily. The one thing I would probably change is just take that final maximization down a tiny bit, but. The way I was creating all this space was really cool by, you know, sculpting as much as I could in the mixes. And if I remember correctly, that's like a stem master type project where it wasn't just a simple like two track master. It was like a, uh, you know, I did special things with the drums and bass to like sculpt it all to get it as loud and huge as it was. I don't think that everybody knew there was a volume war going on, but the thing that people did know without knowing that they knew was that (laughs) the human brain thinks louder is better. And so I can totally see how a 16-year-old kid wanting to be competitive, Mm -hmm. regardless of knowing about the volume wars, would just want to push as hard as possible because they themselves would probably sit there and listen to stuff and think that louder is better. Right. And I mean, I did think louder was better and I made 
I mean, I, I lived that so hard for a solid decade, I'd say. Between like 2000 and 2010, roughly, I think some of the jobs I even got were because, in large part, my stuff was able to be louder than other stuff, in part because I was doing techniques that you know other studios weren't doing. I was using drum triggering on some stuff. That was weird in the late 90s to be doing that, you know? And by doing yes. that, you can absolutely, that absolutely lets you drive that master comp louder and all sorts of things. If you can crank the snare to like this insanity volume without getting weird hi-hat bleed, you know, and then you smash everything with whatever weird clipping techniques I was doing back then, like it can sound really aggressive and really good. And that's why I want... That's something I've been exploring recently. I'm like, I got to get a little bit back to this a bit because it is a bread and butter thing to uh, really get like that. Because I've been so much all all about getting really great natural tones on everything that I can forget the big picture that, oh, you know, it's not just loud. Like when you put in one CD, is it louder than the previous one? It's like perceivable volume, so to speak, kind of stuff I really got to refocus on because it's still a thing. It's still a thing people care about, I think. Yeah. The new Reaping Asmodia record is going to really push it. I don't necessarily think that just because there's a loudness war, that means that all loudness is bad. Yeah. it Sometimes it's the right move. I mean, for, I mean, I'm working with mostly heavy metal here. It's probably usually the right move. And I forget that sometimes because I'm so enamored with the idea of making something sound like Slayer South of Heaven or something with massive <laughs> amounts of dynamic range that I forget, you know, I should also do what I'm good at. And that's definitely what I'm good at is, uh, you know, making tight, huge sounds. Like, I don't know, some of the records people have liked that I've done recently have been pretty loud. I remember that... uh like that Zenith path passage record I did is crazy loud. And I think compromise is nothing. Meaning like I wouldn't make that record any less quiet because it's part of what's making that so aggressive and work so well and kind of fills in the gaps where other things I wish I had done a lot more dynamic. There's some records I wish I could I could try to open up, but there's gonna be so many ancient plugins that won't load and drum libraries <laughs> that won't load. But I mean, I would love to like reprint. Price of Existence by All Shall Perish, for example. I would love to just reprint that and just take the gain down like two decibels just to hear it. Cause that's like a record I hear. I'm like, God, there's just straight distortion on this that doesn't need to be there for any reason other than someone not turning a dial slightly as far. So that's, that's where I regret. I will say that I feel like I have a couple regrets about things that I made too dynamic. Yeah, or pushed that's what I'm for saying. them to be too dynamic. Yeah, like so. The last Doth record, I was super obsessed with it being as natural and dynamic as possible, and I think it sounds great. Like so, I do think it sounds great. But at the same time, I wonder, wouldn't it probably still sound great if maybe there was a little bit more uh, of a sample presence on the drums and it was a little bit louder? And I think the answer is yes. Actually, I've gone too purist at times and regretted it and then at the same time the other direction and not enjoyed it either so i definitely think there's a balance and i just i don't think that it's kind of back to the gear thing or whatever i don't think there's any one thing that works 
all of the time or is that the right or is the right solution all of the time for every single scenario every single scenario is unique and has this sweet spot or this range it wants to be in i think it also always comes back to the one thing which is to listen and that's what i've gotten so much better about recently i'm really pleased with all the mixes i've done this year and I think a large part of why is just that I've listened to them much more. And that's something I'm going to take out of this whole COVID-19 thing is that... Uh, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean it quite literally. I'm listening and I'm like listening for what I want to hear different and I'll listen and revise and I will let it take me wherever it wants to take me. I'm not getting constrained by just trying to get through some process. Like I'm, I'm not afraid to just do some wild totally not what I expected to do thing. How is that different than before though? I'd say it's different from before because I was not like you said, I was trying to do achieve a goal like, oh, I want to make this sound as natural as possible. Oh, I want to make this like going into it, the conceived preconceived notion of like how this should be. And the answer is it should be what sounds the best when I like Mm-hmm. listen carefully. Don't just listen on one occasion because I mean, your ears are dead. I try to say this a lot to people, but you're done for the day, in my opinion, about a half an hour into loud listening of something. And you do need to oh, do yeah. loud listening. <laughs> and that's the other thing. Some people are like, well, then just listen at like 70 decibels all day. I'm like, okay, nobody's listening to heavy metal at 70 decibels. That's not, that doesn't make sense. We're going to have a, you know, an issue if you do it that way, like in a whole different way. Because you're going to get everything's going to sound. Yeah, that's a good way to start over compressing everything is to start doing things that way. You know, interesting you say that because I do think that there's something to be said for mixing quietly. However, every great mixer I know that mixes quietly does not mix quietly all the time, and that that's like the big thing. Like they definitely turn that shit up. Is at strategic times. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm doing most of the mixing quietly. Well, you know at home and I'm doing most of the loud listening on the in-ears on the runs or you know for a few minutes when I'm in here and once I'm done doing that I know that I'm toast for hours that's what I'm saying like I don't yeah I don't get fooled into think oh my ears feel fine no you've kind of blown out some frequencies that will they'll return to you but they're not going to return instantly well you know and I'm not talking crazy loud here I'm just saying like you've got to crank it a little bit at times, you know, lots of times, frankly, you know, that's, that's a thing you can get way too obsessed with like longevity when instead you should be, uh, you know, actually listening to it, how people are going to listen to it. Well, when metal, man, if the energy is not right, then nothing is right. And it's hard to really understand the energy. And I, I mean this in a technical and an emotional way. It's hard to understand the energy if you don't feel it and you can't really feel it quietly. Like you can do problem solving right. when you listen quietly. You can do a lot of technical work, but the big picture of how it does it feel like fucking ground shattering metal, you need some volume for that for sure. Yeah. And I mean, that's the other. And I also think it's the best way to avoid uh, over compression, making too loud, loudness war masters is to listen loud sometimes because you know that's when things will sound better with that in fact you know you i don't know 
what mastering limiter people use, but the one I use has the unity gain monitoring thing, and I don't feel I was taking enough advantage of that beforehand. Because nowadays I set that where it sounds the best, and that's it. That's that's gonna be. I don't. I'm not gonna push it a little further or back it off or anything. If it, I'm putting it where it sounds the best. Turn it off. That's where. Turn off the little unity gain thing. That's as loud as I'm gonna make that mix. And sometimes that ends up being super loud, and I don't have a problem with that. You know, don't. But I'm not gonna. That's the way to avoid the volume war thing, in my opinion, is to use that unity gain monitoring. And to explain that a little better, in case someone doesn't get that, that's listening. You know, it's a thing where you can turn up the gain on the mastering limiter, and it'll keep the volume constant, but be applying more and more of the actual limit or whatever process it is. So you can actually hear the changes it's making. Exactly. And then yeah. while you're doing that, you should be listening pretty damn loud, in my opinion, because that's where you would hear, like, am I losing impact from the snare? Am I, do I need to lose impact from the snare? Like, do I need to get a little less drums in this mix and a little more guitar? I mean, that's not the best way to do that overall, but I'm saying at the final stage, like, that's a great idea, in my opinion. I completely agree with you. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. The beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Let's switch gears. I have a question for you about Colin Richardson. You worked with him on the Machine Head project, right? Yeah. The one that just, the two songs we just put out. And that was also a, you know, that's a thing where going back to the thing we were just talking about, you know, that had to happen fast. Meaning like, you know, Interesting, because he's not known for working fast. 
Well, we were working, I mean, there was a whole team. There's also Chris Clancy did a lot of the work on that end off in Europe. So he was working with Chris and Chris and him put together what they put together, you know, quickly. And then we had a lot of back and forth, but I'm saying it had to happen on a pretty, you know, it, w- it was consuming me Talk 24 hours table. a day when it was happening. So it was a big deal, a big what to do because we will, you know, really want to get the songs out quickly. So, you know, that's all I'm saying. So I've had the honor of getting to work or be around him a few times. And the thing that struck me is how fucking meticulous that guy is and how high his standards are. It's kind of insane. You know, for instance, when the Trivium and Waves drums were recorded at my house, he spent three weeks finding like a position and a sound for the bass drum. Three weeks. But at the end of those three weeks, it sounded incredible. Like incredible. Uh, He's just one of the most meticulous people I've ever met. Did you feel that when you were working with him? I felt nothing in large part because keep in mind, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So we still haven't met other than through Uh, some emails. Yes. But I mean, yes, in the terms that the work was done so meticulously and also done so well, that whole experience was the best probably. I mean, I've had a couple good ones and a couple bad ones, but that was probably the best experience I've had with sending out something I'd been working on for a long time. We had a working mix of both those songs that was over two years old, meaning like I had been messing around with the mix of those for like two years and it was completely falling out of control because you know we're also tracking in the middle of it and I'm tracking the day we're sending stuff over there. There's good reason for division of labor here with that project, I guess what I'm getting at. And it was really great to not to like get back a first mix from them and have it be 90% there and like super happy with it. And you know, that's a pretty rare thing when it comes to those kind of projects. So uh, I was pretty impressed with how they how well organized and how you know good things came out and like you said especially drums they they just had a really great handle on how to get those drums tones were actually pretty tricky to work with for sure i feel like sometimes when sending stuff to an outside mixer or mastering engineer you get it back and it's like a bummer yeah i mean it can be not always obviously it can be a bummer but when you get someone on that level really gets it it's like it elevates the work you did and oh certainly to me it's like a magical thing to get to hear it through that great person's perspective and the mastering thing is a even better example because i've had a lot more stuff where i've had it mastered outside and finding people that you like working with with that and that get your stuff and like that i've done 10 mastering projects now with this guy justin chaturs and i've done some mastering projects with ted jensen and a few others where I'm always pleased now <laughs> with them. And that hasn't always been the case in the past when I've, you know, done outside mastering. I've always gotten something back and been like, well, aspects of this are better, but what happened to the low end? What happened to this? I don't even like this better than mine. And I do a lot of mastering work myself too. So I'm going to be a very discerning person when it comes to this stuff. So, you know. It's really nerve-wracking, and especially in that case of those two Machine Head tracks, it's like, not only do we get those, you know, mixed pretty quickly, but we also then, we had to like, you know, make some pretty quick moves and quick 
comment and quick stuff to get the mastering right with Ted. And it's so great to be working with Ted because Ted's, you know, arguably the best hard rock mastering engineer in the world or something along those lines. Yeah, I I would say that's about accurate. And so it's really helpful because, you know, we did have some stuff to go back and forth with him about, but it was easy to do because he got it. He heard what we're hearing. Like the first master we got back from him, I was like, oh my God, this sounds great. Rob hears it and he's like, this sounds great, but the vocals are quieter. And I listened to it again and I'm like, oh, he's right, the vocals are quieter. And that's potentially problematic for a song that's very vocal driven. So we actually just supplied them with mixes with a little more vocal in them, gave a couple different levels. It was like, Ted, try these different things. There it was, problem solved. And then something else got better in the process with one of the songs where Ted found a different piece of gear he used. And uh, we ended up really happy with those masters with how they came out. That's a 24-hour period we're talking here from first master to like final though. And we went back and forth like, you know, five times. What was it about that machine head project that had to be turned around so fast? And what was what was the interaction with Colin? What you produced it and then you sent it to them to mix and they had to turn it around fast. You had to give revisions fast and just the whole is that am I understanding correctly? Yeah, that's that's it. I mean, we wanted it turned around fast just because we wanted the song out quickly. It was because one of the songs was specifically about the George Floyd incident and you know it's the one that has a uh, jesse from kill switch engage on it i mean we got jesse's vocals the day after i sent it over to colin and chris so you know that was quick putting that whole thing together was pretty you know see of our pants quick and also kind of tricky to do because of uh lockdown you know I mean, we're doing everything by proxy even me and rob are barely seeing each other in person Rob actually, I set up a setup so Rob can uh, track himself at least to do vocals over mixes. He can't like, you know, adjust anything, but he can track himself and he's put together a couple of things that way, luckily, because of that. And, you know, I'm trying not to go into the studio whenever possible. And when I do, it's kind of annoying. I had to do an actual recording project with the band because we were near the end of it, you know, when quarantine hit and it's a pain being in the studio all day masked and trying to like have any Seems kind of like safety. It. Especially when, you know, a band is the most wild card group of people you can imagine to be around. So it's it's tricky. And I haven't done it since. And I am trying to figure out how we're going to actually somehow reopen in an official way. But I'm not sure that's really going to happen. I may just have to stick to one-on-one things for the time being, depending on how things go. But I am going to start tracking drums for a few records, and it's going to be just simply, you know, me, the drummer, maybe a guitarist coming in, kind of situations. So, but as far as just having a whole band of this dude, it just can't happen right now. <laughs> no shit. I, I when I see pictures of that stuff going on, I'm like, man. You guys are really trusting each other on this. And in my case, I mean, I don't own my studio I work at, which I love. I think we actually covered this last podcast, but, you know, like Mm -hmm. part of that is, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't do it at my own place even, but it's not my own place. And we don't really have a working legally safe, among other things, protocol in effect at that studio that could be viable. It's not just a recording studio either. There's like 50 rehearsal studio rooms oh, there. God. Yeah. And the bathrooms are shared. 
and there's a shared lounge between the five recording studios. I'm at the original big recording studio there, but as of now, there's so much sharing happening and they're installing new... He's spent a bunch of money installed new ventilation that will make it so that previously all the air was circulating room to room there. That struck him as just a huge problem if he's going to reopen the rehearsal facility ever anytime in the near future. So he decided to invest in that. Whether or not that fixes the problem, who knows, but we're... I'm hoping we get some stuff rolling starting this month as far as like actually being able to go in there. But I'm missing it less and less in some ways because I've been steadily, I'm swamped with work. Like I'm stressed right now podcasting in the middle of the day because, you know, I've just got like 10 mixes I'm in the middle of working on. That's, that's a good problem to have. It is a good problem to have. And I am shocked how you know, just how much uh, work has actually increased, if anything, recently. It hasn't gone down at all. It's been going up. It's just all mixing now. And I do enjoy doing the mixing and the mastering stuff, arguably more than going in and tracking bands in person. I miss it to some extent, but I've been shifting my balance over the years more and more that direction anyway. So this is just accelerating what you were already doing. Right. I mean, significantly. But... It's not the end of the world, and I'm not going to get antsy about it. And certainly there's bands, you know, there's groups that want to be recording with me, and I keep, I feel bad for stringing them along, but I'm not actually stringing them along. You know, I'm just telling them what I know, and what I know keeps changing. The idea originally was, oh, we should be able to reopen in May. Oh, we should be able to reopen in June. <laughs> oh, maybe in August. And now at this point, it's like, well, maybe next it's year. It's probably just going to be this way till there's, a vaccine or everybody's dead, you know? I don't really know what to say. Like, there's no... The city literally isn't going to legally allow a non-essential business. And I'm in a pretty big area. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. We've had pretty big outbreaks of this. And it's not... It's just not viable to open a studio up for tracking. And yeah, I know also, like you said, I know people just giving it the fuck it attitude and just, you know, running their studios. And some people are like out of house studios, but at the same time, I know I've seen plenty of just in-studio footage and I'm like, what's going on? I mean, I say it the same way I look at like, you know, some big house party with a bunch of friends at it. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? What is going on here? Like, this is why we are where we are. This is why we're a joke of a country. But hey, I could get, I don't want to get way off topic into that, but... There's a reason we're still in a in the shit problematic situation right now, and it's a hundred percent because of people not being responsible about it. So, because you're doing a bunch of mixing work, and there's a lot more of it, is that does that mean that a lot more people are are tracking themselves? It does. I mean, that that's the thing, and you know, I've always tried to help people through that too a little bit, and I've been getting a lot more requests just for information from me. You know, like people just trying to get my help with, uh, you know, making sure. I know a lot. Of, I know several people I've known for years and years, and they're all all of a sudden setting up their own little home studio. I've got to imagine that like interfaces and you know just basic recording software is selling like hotcakes right now because people are all setting up their first little recording corner in their rooms because they. Well, I can tell you that URM has grown. I. Be shocked if it hadn't grown. It's grown. You should call it a wrap if you weren't growing during this, because this is <laughs> you're made for this. And I agree. <laughs> it's not. I mean, 
it's this isn't forever. There's no scenario where this is lasting, you know, the rest of our lives or something. But there is a lot to be said for like the quote unquote silver linings in this whole pandemic. And I've had a lot of them. I'm not even sure it's been a negative for my life in general. Like there's been some really crappy things about it. And especially around the beginning of it, it really messed up a lot of things for me and my wife. Like, just like she had a huge trip planned, literally the week that lockdown happened. And it was to a really cool thing that she's never going to get to do now. And she also had a new job lined up. And then in my case, I was in the middle of recording the Black Map record. We were mid-guitar tracking. And, you know, we had this elaborate guitar thing, million pedals out, and it's just stayed sitting there for four months. I'd literally cleaned it up three weeks ago. Finally, we like went in and wrapped that all up. Yeah. Because that's how Ghost Towns, the studio, became. It's not like anybody else. It's not my studio, but nobody else was there for any point and still hasn't been there since like March 13th. Whenever Rudy Gobert came down with coronavirus is pretty much when the pandemic became pretty real in America. It's at least my little demarcation point. So, as far as the remote tracking goes. Um, one thing I've heard people say is that they're happy to be getting all this mix work, but they're having to do a lot more coaching oh, yeah. to musicians. And the results, you know, vary. Some musicians do a great job, but in some ways, there's a lot more crap to fix. Uh, okay. Well, how do you feel about that? Yeah. I'm going to throw uh, my industry under the bus. Sometimes some of the best. All of the, in fact, I'm going to go even further. All of the best prepped, most organized projects I've ever been sent to me have been not from professional engineers, but from like a hobbyist who really cared, really went to the attention to detail to label things and like make sure everything was sent to me properly and in order and how they want it. Because they're not too good to do it. <laughs> that's right. It's, that's the really part of it. And also that they're, you know, they got to pay me a good bit of money and they don't want me wasting time on that. And I also tell bands like way in the like three months before we're doing a mix stage when they're just asking me for quotes and things, I'll say, tell you right now, you know, I'm charging basically for the time I spend working on this. You can decrease that quite a bit by having it decently organized and like not having major problems left and right like this, this and this. Make sure everything's in sync. Make sure this. There's ways to do this. It's not that hard. Doesn't matter what DAW you're using, but you can get this to work. I'll once again use that Gamma Bomb record as a reference. I think that was the most well-organized mix session I was ever sent. And they're not an, you know, they're not a pro engineer in any way, shape, or form, but they had they put a Cubase session to get for the whole album together for me. Everything was labeled perfect. It was already in sequence. It was already there. They even had put some groups together. They had that's awesome. Know, had the levels and the panning, so I I knew where they wanted things panned. I knew where they wanted some effect, you know. And it was a great start point. And I've had other great start points, and like I've been pretty lucky with stuff sent to me. But like you said, yeah, I'm also dealing with people that, and I can't get upset at them about this. But like you know, they're gonna make pretty big mistakes on the engineering end of uh, how to like you know track their guitar DIs at home and. Yeah, because how? Because they don't know. But I've been dealing with that for a long time. Because I, I would say bands, especially in like the technical death metal kind of side of things, have been going that direction for some time. Like where they'll track themselves at home much more. It's a thing. 
And, you know, I don't mind it really at all. <laughs> I love working with a lot of those projects because they're going to be better a lot of the time because the band didn't feel any constraint that they're paying me hourly for studio time. Instead, they're, you know, just focused. Maybe they spent months on one riff, you know? And then there's the people that it makes no sense for at all. The lazy types that are just going to like one take it anyway. And I'll get sent some terrible takes. And like, I've had to deal with a few drum tracks recently that I was, my thought process was there's no way I would have been in the room tracking a drummer this good. Like, it's a good drummer. And they would, uh, be okay with that take that they just did right there. Now I'm going to have to really do some work to fix this. That kind of thing, you know. That's where it sucks not being in the room with them. Man, some people need a producer. That's right. Some people Straight do, up. and some people absolutely don't. And I'd say it's a 50-50 proposition. Yeah, I agree. What actually matters, in my opinion, is knowing that about yourself. The self-awareness is what matters in this situation, not whether you do or don't need a producer. Right. Completely right, because... It's it's not everybody. It's just some people are going to work really well when they're just given a ton of time on their own. And that's why I'm, I mean, so far I've been really happy with a lot of these records from quarantine because I'm guessing a lot of the stuff I'm getting right now is from people that have had nothing to do for a long time and they've been upset about a lot of stuff. They got all sorts of inspiration and they just start pouring it out and some really good records coming together because of it. In other cases, it's just is it's just stuff that was pre-planned this way. Yeah, it was, then they just had to do it anyways. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, if they want to get it done, this is what they have to do. That band I was talking about, Black Map, that was probably the biggest challenge because that was a record with the band that was, I was totally working in the capacity as a producer with them. I was very much part of guitar decisions. I was part of all sorts of things. Luckily, we had already tracked all drums and bass. We were halfway through guitar, but you know, and we had done half of the vocals too, but you know, we had to break off and not do everything together. And they tracked the rest of the guitars at a studio that was willing to open up and track them. And then I had to do some one on one sessions with the vocalist to uh, finish the record because. He knew, and I think it was really smart of them to just recognize. At first, there was talk of, oh, we'll just, I'll just loan you a Neumann and you can just go. You have a nice setup at home. He knew, he did really great demos of the record. You know, it was one of the better demoed records I had worked on. And that's more of a pop, hard rock type record, too. And he just, you know, month after we said, oh, you're just going to track the rest at home. And it was like, no, actually, no, I need to be there with you. And I'm, that was a really smart decision on his part. Even though it was a pain to get something scheduled, pain to figure out how to do it. I'm glad we did it, because the record's done. It's complete, mastered, everything's done now, and I certainly don't regret the fact that they ended up having to be at multiple studios and all the things, because I think it really helped in the long run how much the record got delayed. It was supposed to be done in March. It ended up done in July, but because of that, I think it came out really great. I've heard some engineers kind of resent having to deal with self-recorded tracks but man like you said good luck with it's that. been going in this <laughs> yeah yeah it's been going in this direction anyways and exactly yeah. good luck with that because this is the future i mean there will always be room for production in the studio with a producer but there's also going to be more and more that can just do it on their own and they're going to they're going right. to do it on their own 
There's no way out. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 it, that's a baffling opinion to me even because I mean, I can't imagine a situation where I would ever feel that way. I don't know. It's just a strange way to feel about that whole thing where you would have some sort of resent towards something that was self-produced or even more so people that are fearful that, you know, being a audio engineer producer is just going to be a fading like career as a whole. And I don't see that as all. Dude, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I think the best comparison is saying it's like being a chef will someday be not a job. All that information's on the internet. You can learn to make a really fancy thing on some YouTube video these days. Uh, that's not the point. <laughs> you know, it's an art form. It's like saying, I, I, it's such a dumb argument. I can't even really uh, devil's advocate it, but it doesn't make any sense. Just like there's still going to be head chefs at fancier restaurants, there's still going to be producers of music and engineers and mastering engineers and all these there things. Will always and we're not be replaceable with technology. We're actually the best at using the technology, you know? Yeah, exactly. You're not going to master everything on Lander for the rest of your life and get the best results. <laughs> No, it's it's very, very true. I've heard a lot of people get scared about that. They get scared about things like URM existing. Just They're just scared in general. And my opinion is you have nothing to be scared of because all that happens with this becoming more popular is that more people know about different producers. More people are in the game. More people are trying to do it. And if anything, more people trying means more people realizing how good they aren't at it and uh, needing your skills if you actually are good at it. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Also, I've been hearing the same thing said for a very long time. That ex that exact you know line you're talking about here. And my answer would be, don't be a coward all your life. Like this, like, first off, everybody's yep. been saying that forever. It's never been true. We're not like car manufacturers or something where we're getting replaced with robots, you know, which is, I would argue, one of the single biggest issues facing humanity right now is automation and the industrial revolution we're going through. But that's a whole other conversation. This is art. This is an art job. In the end, I'm just someone creating art. And that's where the idea of being replaced should not be something you're scared of, especially if you have any confidence in what you're doing. So I hate that opinion. <laughs> I am I agree. violently against the idea that you should be worried about being replaced, whereas you, what you need to do is be good at what you do. And make the right relationships and keep those relationships. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for coming on and hanging out and talking to me. For sure. It's been a pleasure as always. Yeah. We we got more philosophical in this this episode as we were more historical the first time, I want to say. That's the that's the way to go, in yeah, my opinion. It was really great being on again. Yeah. So if anyone's listening, um, you want to learn more about Zach's history. We got into some pretty good detail. There's some super interesting stuff in the first episode, especially the video game stuff we talked about. What's wild about that episode is you know, that was my first time meeting Joel. And we did that. And what people listening to that episode won't know is that then we were immediately thrust into working together on multiple yep. projects like a month later. 
which was a complete 1,000% coincidence. I see. I didn't realize that. I thought that you guys knew each other. No, had no prior knowledge of each other. He, he, one of you, he was either you or him, I assume, or even Joey. I don't know. Used to be when I was on, it was called the Joey Sturgis podcast. But I remember that, you know, I then, like a couple weeks later, got contacted by Machine Head about doing their new record. And then I talked to him. He told me that, you know, hey, we, we did our last mix with this guy, Joel. We're going to have him working on the production of this stuff. And you'll be the producers, like, tracking engineer here. This is how this is going to be. We're going to try it with this other band first. And I was like, oh, do you mean Joel Wanasek? And he's like, yeah, 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 that guy. I was like, okay, that's random, but okay, cool. Great. Interesting. That See, that's the part I didn't realize because it was so soon thereafter. It was immediately. I mean, like, yeah. it might have been like the next week. I can't remember. It was pretty quick. Yeah. But now, of course, Joel had already worked with them, but I hadn't worked with them since 2010. So it was a totally random, out-of-nowhere thing. It's a small world. Yeah, it is. That's the thing people don't realize about the audio engineering world is when I was at that URM summit, for example, I'm like, half the engineers I know of are here. Yeah. There's not that many, especially nope. in hard rock and heavy metal, like which is seemingly a big thing among your circle. It's it is the thing in our circle. Oh, have you declared that the thing? Is it always been that world's best online school for rock and metal producers? Okay, well there you go. Okay, so we're, we're yeah we're staking the claim in yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. You're not trying to produce trap, is what you're saying necessarily? No, I mean we might do some things here and there in other genres, but rock and metal's it's our world. I got you. Anyway, yeah, that's my point. So I was like, I see half the people in the world. I mean, you you know how you know how it is. It's your it's your world too. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I ignore the outside world for the most part. So it's a pretty small group of engineers that I actually know of. Yeah. Dude, rock and metal has served me very, very well in my life. I'm loyal to it. Yeah, same here. All right, man. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. I'll talk to you again sometime soon. Okay then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at Levy URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.